And so there's a resiliency, I think, that meditation creates. And we're showing this now in a dish, right? We're recreating sort of that meditative environment in a dish, which is very cool. Now we're trying to figure out where we sort of head after this, right? What is it inside that plasma from an experienced meditator that recreates this crazy, amazing effect? You have to be skeptical. Even when my postdoc came and showed me this data, I'm like, I don't believe you. You cherry picked the right spot on the plate to show me this. He's like, no, look. So we looked at the entire plate. I mean, it was, it's unbelievable. person actually make a difference in unifying the entire world? What are some tools I can use to live a life of more freedom? These are just some of the concepts you'll hear about in every episode of See One Beautiful Soul. Hey, beautiful soul. This is Barbara Heller and welcome back to See One Beautiful Soul. Thanks for joining us. I know you could be doing a lot of other things right now, especially now that the world feels a little bit off kilter. Am I right? I'm glad you came right here so that you could just open your heart just a smidge and let in some beautiful words and some wonderful guests and just feel the love, just feel the support and the love for you. A beautiful soul. Even when we see pictures of big groups of people shouting, feeling, hurting, even taking action in really destructive ways, the worst thing that you can do in that moment is panic. And I learned from my teacher, Dr. Joe Dispenza, that the body doesn't really know the difference between an experience and a thought. So what you could do is if you experience something really negative in any moment of your life, You can go back and rewire how by taking a moment to think about what you would like to experience in the future and just allowing a new feeling, a new thought of what you would like the future to bring to to come in and unfold within your mind. And then allow that new feeling to come from the tip of your head down through your toes. Just, yeah, let it wash over you. Take a deep breath in. And feel all of those good feelings because it has power. One of the reasons I started this podcast was not to hit millions of people every week, even though that would be great if that eventually happened. It's just to gather a small group of like-minded souls that really want the world to be a great place, that really want to shed light every single moment that we're alive in whatever ways that we can, to do good with the breath, the life that we have in this moment. And I so appreciate that you're here with me on this journey. It means so very much to me. Please share it with somebody else today who could use a hug, a pick-me-up. Nowadays, we can't really leave our homes. And if we do, it's usually to the store for necessities or for a much-needed walk through a forest or near a riverbed, somewhere where we can feel the elements and We are not able in this moment to hug tons of people, um, maybe the way that we used to. I don't know about you, but I'm a hugger. So for me, sending an episode of this podcast out to somebody else with a little heart emoji or a hug emoji is my way of hugging them because I really open up my heart and invest in each one of these episodes and so do all my guests and I'm so grateful. And if you feel that hug please send it, share it. Even, even, you know, if you like a particular moment, um, remember the timestamp and say, Hey, listen to this part. Cause it's me hugging you. Um, sometimes somebody says something on here and I'm like, Oh my gosh, my friend needs to hear this, you know, fill in the blank, whatever friend, family member you have that, that really needs to hear this or something happened in their life that was really similar to your friend or family members. So please feel free to share it. Thank you so much. My guest today is Dr. Hamal Patel. He was born in India and moved to the U.S. at the age of six. He is a professor and vice chair for research in the Department of Anesthesiology at UCSD in San Diego and runs a vibrant research program that includes budding scientists at many levels, including high school students, undergrads, graduate students, postdoctoral fellows, clinical residents, research scientists, and junior faculty members. His laboratory's main focus is on the membrane structural protein, cavolin, with projects in his laboratory focusing on a wide range of different bodily functions 
functions and malfunctions. His overall interest in cellular stress adaptation has led to a recent interest in how the mind and body work together to regulate health resilience and how such global effects can be captured and seen in blood. I met him actually through a Dr. Joe Dispenza retreat, and I was so impressed with him and just his sheer honesty and how he approaches his scientific research and also how wonderfully he connects with the spiritual world. So I figured, what a great guest to have on this show. Am I right? Please stay tuned. I will be offering three different courses in the next couple of weeks. Please go to barbheller.com to find out more. There will be three different courses. One is going to be the continuation of Finding Your Creative Clarity. You can go to findcreativeclarity.com or go over to barbheller.com and sign up for that. There will also be a membership called the Fireflyers Club, which is happening right now on Facebook. If you drop me a line at info at barbheller.com, I can tell you more about it. Or you can just hop onto Facebook and look for a group called the Fireflyers, F-I-R-E-F-L-I-E-R-S. Also, I will be offering a brand new course called Speak My Magic, and it is based off of this curriculum that I created called Speak Your Magic, and it's all about how to find your story, what it is that the world really desperately needs to hear from you, how to make it curated so that it can speak to the heart of many, and then how to actually perform it or reveal it to the world in a very enjoyable way. Uh, you can find out more about that at speakmymagic.com or just go to barpeller.com and you'll see a link right there. It's such a pleasure and an honor to introduce you to Dr. Hamal Patel. Hello, Hamal. It's so good to see and hear you. We're sort of new friends-ish. I feel like we bonded right away when I called you. So I met you through Dr. Joe Dispenza. Um, I'm a big fan of his work. I attended a retreat recently and you were online and shared some incredible new findings about COVID-19 or at least something close to it, which you can get into in a minute. And even though I've never had a scientist on this show, I am just fascinated by the idea that the brain can heal the body. Yeah. And everything else, really, emotions, mental health, spirituality. And I was so impressed with your findings scientifically, but also just how learned you are in the realm of spirituality. And I thought, how cool would it be for our listeners to get a upfront and close personal view of what's happening on the cutting edge of science right now? <laughs> And how it relates to what this podcast is about, which is really spirituality and mental health. And from you, who you're a student of many forms of spirituality, you're so articulate about it. And also you have this equally passionate side for science and how we can heal ourselves. And so it's rare. I mean, I really try to find whenever I go to a doctor, whether it's a dentist, like I'm always looking for somebody who practices both Western and Eastern philosophies. It's very challenging, but I find them, you know, here and there. And it's just so cool to meet you. So without further ado, I would love just to have you share a little bit about science first, just because that's kind of the in yeah. thing. Yeah. And what you're finding about COVID right now. <laughs> I think your introduction's a little too kind. Um, oh. yeah, I may be an expert in a few things, but spirituality, I don't claim to be an expert in. Uh, it's something that I've sort of grown into over the years, and it's been a journey, and we can talk about that as we go in, in sort of our, our podcast. So we're science, right? So this is how we sort of met and how things are potentially going to move forward for Joe's work. Um, and where we really want to head with this mind-body connection. Um, in terms of science, this is not something I typically have focused on in my work. You know, I grew up scientifically as a, an animal physiologist. And then as I began my own independent lab, it was more of a cell biologist. And then you sort of happily and sort of through these interesting connections that happen, you just run into people and things lead from one thing to another, right? And so this is how we sort of fell into this project with Joe um, and others in the group. And it's really sort of heightened my sense of where I think cell biology was in my life and, and now how we're applying to mind-body connection, that the brain can 
create an environment within our bodies that then protects from outside stressors. And this is really where the the quest for finding this mind-body connection sort of started. And this was sort of an organic thing that, that Joe's always been interested in. You know, there's these anecdotal ideas that if you mindfully meditate or if you meditate, that things happen to you. And these are unexplained kinds of things. And so as a scientist, that's really not very satisfying, right? That you meditate and you get better and your pain goes away, your cancer goes away or whatever gets better. Right. You must be sitting there just with eye rolls or you might've been in the past, right? I do. And I I rolled my eyes at Joe as well. You know, I'm like, this is unbelievable. 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 (laughs) And so this is where Joe and I, I think, hit it off initially. He wanted a skeptical scientist to come in and look at his subjects, his samples and figure out if there's something really going on. And I think one of the things as a scientist that I'm very conscious about are individuals who expect a certain outcome. If you have a a preconceived biased notion of what you're going to want, that's really not a very scientific approach. And, And so the thing I liked about Joe is that he invited me into his world with the caveat that, you know, he was vulnerable. He said, you may find absolutely nothing and that what I'm speaking is just snake oil and selling this to people. But at the end of the day, you may find something that transforms how we think about meditation and how we move forward. I think that healthy skepticism that he and I both had led to this interesting sort of endeavor. And so, you know, we were invited in February, pre-COVID, I guess, or start of COVID, however you want to say it, February 2020. Um, Joe had an event at Indian Wells, and so uh, my collaborator, Tobias Muller-Bertram, who's a pain physician, who'd been working with Joe for a little time before I did. And so Toby's been using meditation for pain management in his clinics as an alternative, given you know the opioid crisis and all these other things that are going on these days. And so he introduced me to Joe and we started talking and, and we designed this initial study. We wanted to look at a subgroup of meditators and see what happens to them at the molecular biological level to see if we can explain some of these mind-body changes that happen. And so we had a unique opportunity at his workshop to get access to new meditators, which we called novice meditators, and these experienced meditators, right? So the way I describe the new meditators, are they're the naysayers, right? They, they come kicking and screaming to Joe's workshop. Like you've described some of your family and friends, they don't believe what's going on, but there's compelling pushes from individuals like you to get them into this space to experience it. And so they have a healthy skepticism that they're bringing to this. And so we wanted these individuals, right? Ones that don't have potentially a placebo effect that you're going to see where they've already got this preconceived bias notion that things are going to get better. And then we had this experienced group of meditators. You know, they come to multiple events. They believe all the things that he says, and they practice really diligently the art that Joe has prescribed. Um, And we wanted this group because these are individuals that we think have had profound changes in mind-body connections and we think will capture something. And then the the big question was, who controls all of this, right? And in order to design a perfect experiment in science, you have to have the right control group that then allows you to see differences. And so we built in multiple levels of controls. So what we did in this study is we found some spouses that were attending the event, but not practicing in the workshop. So they became ideal controls, right? Roughly similar environmental experiences that they have. They're eating the same foods. They're probably just hanging out at the pool for the week. And so they're relaxed. They're not stressed <laughs> in any way. They act like a, a nice control for the novice as well as the experienced meditators. And then the other thing we did is we built in a control into each one of the groups as well. So we wanted to look at two extreme time points. We looked at a time point before the workshop started. So when people arrived, we collected blood, did brain imaging studies, scanning brainwave activity measurements, heart rate variability, those sorts of things. Then we collected samples after this intense meditative experience um, happened over six, seven days. So we have an endpoint collection. So then each individual has something that we have a baseline of, and then what happens after that intense meditative experience. So every individual acts as their own controls. And so when we started looking at the blood products that came out of this, and so one of the big things in my lab that we've evolved into 
is that if you think about what an individual experiences, they have all kinds of things that happen to them, right? You potentially someone cuts you off on the road and that creates a stress event in your brain and it sets off signals and other things. Maybe you get a warm hug in the morning and that puts you in a different space, right? So all of these emotional, psychological things create a unique environment. And then with that, we consume different things. We eat different things. We experience different environments. And so all of these things come together and create unique individual that you are. And so the question then in my research and where we're headed is, how do you capture this uniqueness? And so we think that we can capture this in blood. Blood is a component of, if you go back to, to Genesis, right? God says, life is in your blood. And so this is where all these ideas of kosher meals and things come from, is you got to bleed everything completely dry. And so this sense that blood is the essence of life is where we're headed with some of this science, is that we think that all of these little micro things that happen to you throughout the day create a unique blood environment that then captures you as an individual. And so this is where we started with, with some of this work. And so we got blood from these individuals. So we have lots of samples that we can do really cool analyses on. And again, the science was we wanted to go big. So we wanted to have an unbiased approach at how we did this. And so we wanted to look for everything that, that was in their blood before and after this meditative experience. And then just look at everything that sticks to the wall. The big thing in science that we're interested right now in, in terms of blood chemistry and, and what is in blood that creates these unique environments that people experience is these things called extracellular vesicles. And so when your cells are stressed or, you know, not stressed, they release unique factors and it's essentially sloughing of membranes. And, and so for, for decades, people thought this was just garbage. And it turns out that this garbage actually has a purpose. And so there's things inside these vesicles that get secreted that then move essentially genetic material and other things all around your body. And so now you can imagine that whatever you're thinking in your brain or whatever you're experiencing releases a set of exosomes that then have a way to work on the rest of the body. And so this is where we started. And so when we looked at these extracellular vesicles, what we noticed was that there was this dramatic decline in the release of extracellular vesicles from individuals that were experienced meditators after the meditative experience. I mean, we did not expect to find anything like this, right? We, it's a small group, 10, 15 people that we were looking at. Usually when you're doing human studies, you need hundreds of thousands of people to get any type of functional endpoint effect. And we saw these effects in groups of 10, 12, 15 people. When we looked at the size of these exosomes, it turns out that even though there's a decrease, there's a, a preferential increase in specific size particles. And so we're going and trying to figure out what's inside these particles that do these crazy weird things. Um, we've done large metabolic profiling of, of blood before and after um, this meditative experience. We've got thousands of factors that we're looking at and trying to sift through right now. But then COVID hit. And so the world is effectively shut down. And so we're trying to think of one of the big thoughts that Joe had is that what's happening with meditation is that you're recreating sort of an immune state, an immune balance kind of thing, right? The stress adaptation. A lot of stress is due, especially in pain and other modalities, it's due to, to inflammatory responses within your body. And so the thought is that meditation somehow suppresses this inflammatory signaling within blood, right? And so could we capture this? And so around the same time, we had, we had made this crazy, we wanted to study SARS-CoV-2 in the lab. Problem with the way the CDC had classified the, the virus is that you'd have to do work in a biosafety level three facility. There's one that exists on campus. It's hard to get access to. You know, it's like that movie Outbreak. You have to gown up and every, if you get one rip in your suit, you're done for kind of thing. And so it's really hard to get access to these facilities. It's hard to get people trained to be able to work in these facilities. And so the idea was, could we create a tool that would allow us to circumvent this barrier? And so I read a few papers and, and people were already doing this. And so what we decided to do was create something called a pseudovirus, right? Pseudo meaning fake. So it's, it's fake to a certain degree, but has certain qualities that allow us to study SARS-CoV-2. So it has an outer coat. 
And so the way SARS, the real SARS, infects individuals is that it has these spike proteins that create an outside coat. These spike proteins engage with cells in the lung. This allows uh, certain receptors to bind. The virus then goes into the cell, infects, grows, and wreaks its havoc. So what we created in our pseudovirus was a fake virus that had these spike proteins on the surface from SARS-CoV-2. But then we packed the inside with stuff we use in the lab all the time, just a, a normal lab-grade virus that expresses this red fluorescent protein. So now when this spike protein gets attached to cells and it goes in, it turns the cell red, right? So you can track how many cells get infected. And so we did this really cool experiment with the, the plasma we had from these individuals that were meditating before and after meditation. And so you have to buy into this idea that that blood that we captured from that individual is that individual, right? So it re, what we're hoping to do is it recreates the environment that that individual is experiencing. We do a lot of cell biology in the lab. The major site where this uh, virus enters is our epithelial cells in, in the airway of our lungs. And so we can buy these cells from a commercial source and grow them up in the lab and do all kinds of crazy experiments. So we bought these lung epithelial cells. They're culturing in the lab. Um, you add this pseudovirus to them. You wait 24 hours and they all turn red, right? So the virus works like you predict. If you do the same experiment in a rat cell, the virus does nothing. Um, so we know that there's specificity for this virus that we've generated for human cells and not for rat and other types that don't express the right component of receptors. And so there's this unique feature of what this pseudovirus actually does. So then we did this really sort of crazy experiment. I'm like, a million dollar experiment, but it's not going to work, is how I sort of approach this. And while we're doing this, everyone's blinded. So they don't know what samples are adding to the dishes and stuff. And so they're just blindly adding things and then looking for what the results come out to be. And so we wanted to recreate the meditative environment in a dish. And so what we did is we incubated these lung cells with plasma from these meditators for an hour. And so whatever is floating around in this blood is then being exposed to the cells. And so the cells are meditating in a dish, right, effectively. And so we put in plasma from the pre-meditators, and then we put in plasma after the meditative experience. After an hour of incubating them in this environment, we exposed the cells to the pseudovirus, and then we waited 24 hours and we looked. So what we noticed is that the, let's start with the control groups, right? So these were people that were sitting around at the pool for the week. So when you look at their pre and post meditation red signal in the dish, it, there's no difference. So the pre-meditation um, incubation versus the post, all the cells still turn red and there's no distinction between pre and post. Now, if we go to the skeptical meditators, right, they're here for the first time, they're potentially experiencing some transcendental events during the week. When you do their pre-post, what we notice is that there's a slight effect in the post-meditation plasma where less virus, the pseudovirus, gets into the cells. So we were sort of excited, right? Our interest is peaked. Then we look at these experienced meditators where we saw these dramatic shifts in extracellular vesicles and all these other things in their plasma. And when we look at this group, there is a profound effect where there's almost no pseudovirus getting into the cells after incubation with the post-meditation samples. And so this is something that's super exciting. And so the idea is that somehow what these individuals did in a week-long workshop is they recreated their environment that then allowed them to potentially inhibit viral entry into their cells. Everything in science comes with a caveat. This is a fake virus. It's not the real virus. We don't know what would happen with the real virus, but this is very exciting, right? We have this ability to track that this cell is resistant to getting the pseudovirus. And so there's a resiliency, I think, that meditation creates, and we're showing this now in a dish. Right, we're recreating sort of that meditative environment in a dish, which was very cool. Now we're trying to figure out where we sort of head after this, right? What is it inside that plasma from an experienced meditator that recreates this crazy, amazing effect? Great. Well, thank you for your work and for doing it when probably other people would have just rolled their eyes because, you know, I think- I still roll my eyes though, right? I mean, you have to be skeptical. Even when my postdoc came and showed me this data, I'm like, I don't believe you. You cherry picked the right spot on the plate to show me this. 
He's like, no, look. So we looked at the entire plate. I mean, it was, it's unbelievable. And when you share this with people, their jaws drop because it's just, yeah, you just can't believe it. Right. Yeah. And that must be really exciting to be one of the first people to do this. Dr. Joe Dispenza, who we keep saying Dr. Joe, that's who we're talking about. When we were there on the first day, you know, everyone had their masks on. We were extremely cautious. Everyone was very cautious. I was the whole time, but there were definitely moments when we were all in a very large room, socially distanced. By the end of it, people were starting to take their masks off. But I think the words that he used were the following, uh, and I may botch them. So forgive me, Dr. Joe, if I'm botching your words. I have so much respect for you. It was something like, it's all energy. If you stay in a high energy spot where you believe that it's all in the field and you have control over what you feel and what you think and what happens inside of your body, you actually have control, you can control it, then you will not allow yourself to go to a low frequency and be susceptible to any disease that's in the field. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, not only did I feel so empowered, I was mad. I was mad that this was the first time I learned that. You know, you hear about this, like the victim mentality in therapy. You know, I come from a little bit of domestic violence in my past and a long line of codependent relationships, abuse, and all kinds of stuff. And you hear about mental health that you can control, at least to a certain extent, what you think about your environment. Even if it's genetic, I love Tony Robbins also. It's like, step up, set a new standard. You know, I quote him all the time. Like, you're not, no one's a victim. Dr. Joe is like times 10. It's like, you literally are right now. You just are (laughs) like right now. And so if that's the case, then this is a technology that everyone should have access to. You know, ever since I got back from that retreat, the whole world is different. I'm looking literally through like almost lavender colored glasses. And a friend of mine, you know, was just waking up and I'm a morning person. And yet I could stay up late also, but I I love the morning. And she said, well, I'll never be a morning person. It's just not natural for me. I said, oh, you just told that to the wrong person. I said, I just spent a week with Dr. Joe Dispenza. There's no such thing as natural because what's, what's ever natural is what you really want. So if you really want something to happen, then you can have it. If you want to stay a night owl, you can. But I don't care why you're a night owl. If you want to be a morning person, you can just choose it. And she, she was like, well, and she really wanted to fight me because there was a need for her to want to stay in this box. So Hamal, now that you have been privy to this, is there a part of you as the spiritual seeker that you also are that kind of wants to tell everybody to meditate? Do you want to start making like YouTube videos that, that tell people not only is vitamin D and zinc and, you know, vitamin C, because we keep hearing this, like all these studies are coming out. What are some supplements we can take to just kind of keep our immunity in check? But do you kind of want to get out there and be like, hey, like with a bullhorn, start meditating everybody. And, and if that were the case, what would you tell people to do? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is, it's a very personal experience, meditation, spirituality. And then this is where I don't, I mean, if you think about how many people actually will do it, it's, it's like everything else, right? You, your doctor will tell you the cure to most diseases are diet and exercise, which is great and easy to do for two weeks, but then you fall into patterns and, and all of this sort of goes by the wayside and, and everything starts over again. And then you have to sort of work up to a cycle where your life sucks and you come back to diet and exercise. I think with the meditation, it's the same thing. I can tell people to do it. Maybe someone will listen and do it for a couple of weeks, but it's, it's sort of the, the message that Joe and others try to propose is this, it's this living in the moment, right? And so how do you do this and, and really make it a life mission and a life change? And so if you're going to do it, I think you have to start slow and then work yourself up to a point where it really becomes a routine part of your life that you can't live without. And it it's going to really change and impact how you function. One of the things we're interested in studying is how long does the effect of meditation last, right? Is it you meditate once and you're good for a month? Is it you're good for two weeks? Who knows? But I don't think I, it, that it's going to be that long lived. And so I think it's it's one mm. of these mindful moment states that you have to be in constantly. And you have to be constantly meditating. And, and it's not like you're doing this 24-7. 
but I think it's, it's like exercise, right? You're going to have to do it 30 minutes to an hour every other day kind of thing and recreate this environment. But then the other aspect is what it teaches you. And, and I practice meditation way back in my college days, right? This is, you sort of try to find yourself in a thousand different ways. And, and one of the ways I tried to find myself was my Hindu past. I was raised as a Hindu, knew very little about it. And then experienced it in college and, and meditated and, and really, I felt like I was in this elevated state, but then life happens and that meditation went by the wayside. I still think about it. I still have sort of an experiential knowledge of it, but I'm rusty, right? And so you get rusty practicing these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so it, the data is amazing, right? I think there's... Thousands of years of evidence to suggest that meditation will change you. And now we have biological evidence to suggest the same thing. And other groups are looking at this in the same way to suggest that your brainwave activities change, your blood chemistries and other things change. And so the question is, how do you start and how do you maintain? I plug a Joe workshop. If you can attend one of his things, attend it. You know, this is a good way to kickstart an experience. And then live it. I think this is the the tough part is once you create and experience that amazing sort of depth of of mind-body connection, it's to continue on and find ways to do it. Yeah, totally. Um, I actually am going to plug a book that I I wrote during COVID. It's called, And Then One Day the World Coughed. It's about blessings that can come out of COVID. And uh, I wrote this during a, a meditation uh, and a prayer session that I had with God because I was having a, an anxiety attack. The second week of lockdown, I was in New York City. I work as an artist and a teacher, and I was working at like a few schools. And, and one day a week, I would go to this one school in the Bronx. It was the first school to get shut down on the East Coast of the United States. And uh, it was March 5th. We all went into lockdown, and, and I was really having a hard time being in this tiny apartment on Central Park. And I was praying around the clock. I wasn't allowed to leave my apartment. It was, it was awful. I love nature. It was just very challenging. And I was terrified that I had it like everyone else. I was terrified I wouldn't ever get to leave New York because I didn't know if they were going to close the borders. You can imagine, as I come from an Ashkenazi Jewish background, where many times we were forced to either stay home or leave. And I think all of the, that genetics came up. And so my, my anxiety was acute at the time. And, and I did tons of yoga. Thank God for yoga online called everyone I knew and I prayed and did lots of cool things. And one of them was writing this book and it came out of a prayer session with God. And I said, what is it that we can learn from this? Cause I never ask why I always say, what can I learn? And all of these blessings showed up on the page. And would you imagine like, you know, I published it a couple months ago and it's like, this is what everyone's talking about. Like all the things that I uncovered, it's not me. It's just like a kind of a, a receiving. But one of them is that we have banks that are open seven days a week. Now we live in a capitalistic society where it's all about money yeah. and how, how sad that, this is where we're at. I mean, of course we would need a great equalizer to stop us in our tracks and have a Sabbath or I would say Shabbat, you know, or Shabbasana, something to just sit and be forced to do it. Because, you know, even myself, I was feeling like checking my phone on Shabbat and starting to, you know, say, well, what's the big deal? It was like weird. Like, do I really need a whole day of rest? And this is someone who's been, I've been giving Shabbat for 20 years. It's just incredible how we really needed this time. And I I see it as a humongous blessing, as painful as it is. And I know it's been way more painful for, for other people. But I think what you're talking about is so valid and valuable. And I just, I just love that it's coming from a big scientist like you. So let's go back a little bit. You mentioned that you grew up in a Hindu background and- Where is your spirituality today and how how did you get there? Yeah, so I mean, you know, one of the things I've struggled with my whole life is faith, right? This is one of the hardest things to come by. And then once you have it, it's really hard to hold on to, right? And you you constantly struggle and fight and think and, and you keep grabbing at it. There's a couple events in my life, I think, that sort of set me into the path where I am today and where I sort of sit. So as I mentioned, I, so I was born in India. English was my first language, and my parents knew that they would eventually move to the U.S., and so they were prepping for this. Grew up in the Midwest. You know, I was one of the only brown kids in the entire area. 
one of the only Indian kids in the high school. So it was a unique experience to go through life as a person of color. This is a hot button issue these days. And, and I'm not a, a minority by any sense in academic settings or medicine or anything like that. But I experienced aspects that you experience where you're the only colored person in a sea of white, right? Those sort of experiences are formative. And, and a lot of it tied to cultural stereotypes about what Hinduism was and, you know, the whole idea of dots and that kind of stuff. There's certain connotations that exist in society about who you are based on what you look like and, and these sorts of things. And I was always a very resilient individual. I was very independent minded and things happen and you sort of move on and you learn from them. And so my experience of Hinduism was very sort of circumstantial, right? It existed, I existed around it. Eastern religion is a very personal, individualized kind of experience, right? It's your relationship with God, but it's really you seeking this relationship. The biggest example of this would be watered down Hinduism, which is Buddhism, right? And so that was my rudimentary understanding of what Hinduism and Eastern religion was. And so the experience was, you know, you'd light a candle once in the morning, once at night on this temple we had in our house and every Indian home has one. And, you know, there's misconceptions about what Hinduism really is. It's considered, so there's three types of religion. There's polytheistic, there's monotheistic, and then there's this middle ground called henotheistic. And so Hinduism is a henotheistic religion. And so most people think of Hinduism as a polytheistic religion. So henotheism is where there's one God, but there's multi-faces of that one God. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, you know, you could consider Catholicism as a henotheism in a certain sense as well, right? There's this trinity that represents God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's largely Abrahamic monotheistic kinds of, of thought. And so the sea of white that I described, right? So I grew up in an environment where I was the only one who was Indian. And so... Things work differently in a society where you're engaged with individuals that are not like you. And so high school comes around. And so I met my wife in high school and she is not Indian. She's Caucasian. We got married. The, the interesting aspect was she was a cradle Catholic. So she was born Catholic, raised Catholic and went to church every week. And this was a, a big part of her um, existence and, and who she was. And so I would go to mass with her every week. Still with this notion that, you know, I was a Hindu, but then there's this Catholic aspect. And so I would go and experience mass and it's a very procedural kind of thing. Um, and I didn't really understand it. And, and this, again, comes back to faith. So I wanted to explore sort of what her experience was. And so I started exploring religion in, in college. And this was sort of a dumb way how I ended up in, in philosophy religion. So I went to a liberal arts school. And so you had to take classes outside of your main level of interest. And so I was a biology major. You were forced kicking and screaming or willingly to take classes in philosophy, religion, literature, other things. And so my freshman year, I'm like, well, I'll take a philosophy, intro to philosophy class. And so I did. And the professor was just amazing. You know, she was one of these just scattered individuals that just had these beautiful ideas in her head about the world and how it existed and existentialism and postmodern thought and all these things. And it just, it ignited something in my brain that I wanted to do more of this. And so in her class, there were two things that stick out, I think, in my mind. There was this Chinese philosopher, I'm horrible with names. Basically, it was this individual who had contemplated that he was a butterfly, but then ultimately he woke up and he couldn't tell if it was he as a human dreaming of the butterfly or the butterfly dreaming of him as the human. And so this, right, this idea of this reality that we create, right? Are we someone else's dream and are we the dream of some being that is not even a human kind of thing? And so there's this sort of twining of, of mental thought and reality and those kinds of things. And then the other thing we read was Rene Descartes' Meditation on First Philosophy, right? So this is where Descartes goes through this excruciating proof of the existence of God. And the existence of God essentially dilutes down to cogito ergo sum, which is I think, therefore I am. 
Yeah. The fact that you can reason and think as an individual must mean that there was a higher power that created this level of, of complexity and thought. Um, and so now you have these two extremes, right? This guy who thinks that you could potentially be a butterfly dreaming of the human versus Descartes' philosophy that's really this human that creates this consciousness and this existence of who they are that then creates this higher power. And so this really ignited this passion to learn more about thought and religion and where these things come from. So I started like every studier of religion and Western thought should start, right? It starts at Judaism. And so I took this class on Judaism and it was taught by this guy, Mark Appold, Dr. Mark Appold. He was the local pastor at the Lutheran church and he is a, a theologian. So he actually got a theology degree in Germany, which is where all the great theologians, I think, come from. Mm -hmm. And he was just this amazing Renaissance guy, right? He spoke like seven languages, all of the biblical, so Hebrew, Aramaic, mm -hmm. Greek, all of the things you would need to study the Bible at, at an excruciating detail. And he knew about everything, right? He was truly a liberally educated individual. He could carry on a conversation about high-level genetics, but then teach you a, a three-hour lecture on the, the Apostle Paul without any notes kind of thing. Just an amazing mind and individual. And so this is where I started exploring Judaism. And it was, it was an interesting sort of introduction to Western theology, right? And so it really built a historical context of what existed. And so my early knowledge of sort of Christianity, Judaism, Islam was all historically based. But I think where I struggled was that leap of faith, right? Is how do you go from that historical existence to then that being the saving cause of salvation in your life? Like you said, right? Most of our lives are spent around this sort of pursuit of money and financial security and resources. And so I sort of poured myself into career, went to graduate school, you know, then we had to sort of survive and exist to then eventually have family and kids and other things and religion sort of falls to the wayside. And then something amazing, dramatic happens that then changes your trajectory. And so my mother passed away suddenly in 2014. And so this was the individual in my life that was the most sort of connected to God that I could imagine, right? So this person that Mm. was sort of this figure that connected to spirituality that I always didn't have. And it was her death that really sort of started me thinking about what do I believe and, and where, what do I want in my life and where do I want to head? One of the things that, you know, I'd been to church for 16 years now to mass and you would sit in front of this crucifix every week Mm. And at this time, when I was going through this struggle of trying to reconcile my mother's death and, and how, what that meant for my life and existence and moving forward, I would be sitting in mass waiting for Jesus to come off the cross and talk to me and save me. And it never happened. Right. And mm -hmm. so this is this idea like this guy existed and the majority of the world, like billions of people think that he's your savior. And mm -hmm. Why isn't he coming to save me? And so lots of things sort of conspire and happen. And, and I have this conversion experience where I have a series of dreams that lead me down this path. And then ultimately, you know, it's Netflix, right? So I'm watching this series <laughs> on the Bible. And the whole idea with Christ is that it's really his death and resurrection that, that people tie to. And this is the birth of Christianity. And so it's the resurrected Christ that I have this Netflix experience with, right? So Peter, <laughs> one of his apostles, who denies him three times uh, while he's undergoing his passion, is sitting around after Christ is risen. And Christ is in front of him, but Peter can't see him. And so then Peter breaks the bread and Christ becomes instantly visible. And so this was my like aha moment, right? And so I'd been participating in the Catholic mass, but I hadn't participated in what's the most important part, right? It was this breaking of the bread wow. and eating of the Eucharist. And so this was sort of my moment of where I'm like, this is what I need to do. And mm. this is need to experience 
And so I went through the the process. And so I went through this and, you know, I thought the the change was going to be at baptism, right? That when you're dunked into the water, my life was going to change. So I have this, this aversion to water. And so this is an interesting sort of connection that my wife made. And so when I was born in the Hindu faith, your star charts are red and your fate is essentially determined from this. And so my mother had had my stars red or my chart red. And one of the things it said is that I should be kept away from water, um, that this was how I was going to potentially die. Right. Oh, my gosh. And so baptism is essentially a rebirth. And so when I was baptized, mm-hmm. I died and was reborn. And so what was in my chart effectively came through in this Hindu chart that ultimately translated into my conversion as a Catholic. And so this wasn't uh-huh. this wasn't one of these moments where it's like, you know, I saw Jesus and everything sort of changed. About, it was a traumatic experience, but I'm not a, a fan of water. But then after the baptism, that same night, and this is during Easter Vigil, an amazing time in the church where there's just built up all through Lent this darkness that then changes into light at the resurrection of Christ. And it was when I had my first communion that I got this just rush of something to the head. Hmm. And I felt this presence that I think was something, right? And this is where my faith really took off. I think it took a a lot of faith to get to this place. Mm -hmm. But then this is where something truly physical happened that then pushed me along. And so now it's, it's, it's a journey. And I continue to, to struggle with faith and lots of things happen and, you know, COVID and all these things. And you sort of wonder why these things happen and Mm -hmm. what's the role of God in, in the world and in sort of our lives. And so that's where, this sort of transition from Hinduism to now practicing Catholic sort of came from. And it was a long, tumultuous journey, which is what I think faith is. Mm. Uh, And, you know, as a scientist, I get asked this question, how as a scientist can you believe in the existence of of God and, and something higher? And so one of my great sort of theological teachers is, and I've never met him, but it's all through YouTube and his videos and books and things, is uh, Bishop Barron, who has one of the first videos we watched in this faith formation group was his explanation of faith, hope, and love. And so his explanation of faith was something that I could relate to as a scientist. And, And so the way he described faith was it's something at the far edge of reason, And he described almost this like a science, right? That science is sort of at this frontier science, science that's sort of like what we're talking about earlier today, right? Meditation and how it changes the mind-body. It's faith to a certain degree, right? But it's, it's at this far edge of reason that's almost unbelievable. But then if you find out enough things, that line that reason draws moves closer and it gets closer and closer to faith. And so as a scientist, this was very digestible to me. And it's something that I could sink my teeth into and believe because there's a lot of things I do in my scientific career that I really have to have faith in. No one believes in these ideas, but they're in my mind and I know that they're true. I just have to do the right experiment to prove that that faith line is more reason and and sort of beyond, right? And so that's, I think, where I am with my sort of faith journey, and it continues. You are so articulate. Like, I really could see you teaching a class at Harvard on the spirituality of science. And it's so interesting how, I, I can't help but laugh at how the divine put you in that class that you are completely using right now as you probably talk to Joe Dispenza all the time. <laughs> like, how could you not use your philosophy of religion class in what we're doing right now in terms of this work? Right. You were prepared, you know, whether you want to see it or not. It's so interesting that you mention scientists will say, how can you even believe that there is such a thing as God when you work in science? And all I can think of is Einstein. And that guy was not an atheist. 
He may not have been a devout Jew, but he definitely believed in God and talked about it many, many, many times and never took credit for his findings. He just would call them discoveries and uncoverings. And I don't know how a scientist could not believe in something bigger, especially with quantum physics and that everything's divisible by one. I mean, there is a oneness. And when you talk about the butterfly, I wrote this uh, short uh, web series, was in a couple of film festivals. It's called Breaking Open. I'm going to send it to you. It's all about that. It's just so funny that you mentioned that today. And, you know, I would say, regardless of you believing you are the, you know, the butterfly like that Chinese philosopher, or that you are the God that created it, or, you know, vice versa, it's still oneness, you know, and as Joe would say, it's still in the field. And I think because we have a piece of God inside of us, at least that's Jewish philosophy, and yet we are swimming in God. God is everything. God's this microphone, this computer, the phone line, the the energy that I'm talking to. We take it all for granted. Just because I can't understand it doesn't mean I I don't believe it exists. I know that you're there right now in San Diego. It's three hours difference, but you know, we're talking right now. We are swimming in godliness. That's why I love discussing this is why I started a podcast on everyone is connected. Everyone is one beautiful soul. And no matter what religion you call yourself, whether you're an atheist or you call yourself that, or you're like a devout, you name it. I think there's so much that more that we have in common than we right. don't. And, you know, you may call it Jesus Christ. I call it the Mashiach who's, who's going to come regardless of, you know, it's a guy, a girl, his name right. is Jesus, Yeshua, David, yeah. Ruth. Like, it doesn't really matter to me what the name is. I just, I believe that we all have a ginormous responsibility right now to rectify whatever our free will is let's just choose right. Like whatever that right is, we all have these little points of light that we can choose right or more right. And we all know what they are deep down. Each of us has that responsibility to to ask from above, what is the right thing for me? And I, I'm just trying to promote, like sit for a moment every day and just contemplate it. Think about what is right for me today. You know, I think the hard work is the things that you fear, right? What you can uncover when you actually sit and contemplate that question. And I think that's where a lot of inactivity and indecision and issues come from in our lives is this fear, this fear of the past and fear of the future and this whole sense that we're not living for where we are today. Well, worry is in Hebrew, we'd say the Satan and you can't have worry and faith in the same moment. So sometimes you just got to let go and trust um, that you're exactly where you need to be. Okay. I'm going to end with one Last thing, and it kind of goes back to something you said earlier, which is if someone, God forbid, gets a terrible diagnosis from a doctor about their health, for instance, you know, your blood work is this, diet and exercise, and they're like, oh, sure. And you say, the normal thing is I'll do it for two weeks. But if, if everyone on the planet knew that it was way more important, probably crucial, we could say, for them to sit every morning for a half hour 15 minutes and just meditate in a certain way. I mean, there is a difference. I've done so many different kinds of meditation. I've also been to India and Thailand and Japan and Hong Kong, and I've done so many different kinds of study on this and my own work. But if we were to meditate every day, if that was more crucial in a way than actually wearing a mask, would people do it if they knew that their health and the rest of the world depended on that? So based on what what you said and that question, now here's the real question. What is something you wish everyone in the world knew right now? I guess it would be that what we were talking about, right? These strings, these things that connect. I think everyone in the world is connected somehow. I don't know how you prove something like that, but what I do with my 30-minute meditation, if I do it in the morning is going to impact you across the country, which is then going to impact someone else. And right, we're all somehow connected. And I think Joe talks about this to a large degree, that there's a community and that if a community does this, the impact is that much greater. This is, I mean, profound when you hear it from Joe, but it exists in every culture, every society, every religion. There is this community sense. And and there's biological proof of this, right? When people have studied long-lived populations across the world, 
one of the things they find is that individuals that are connected, that have friends, family, relationships that are tight, they tend to live much longer, even if they have morbid diseases and other things. There is this sense that it's a shared experience, that you're not alone. And these things, I think, tie us and make us unique. And this goes back to Descartes, right? I think, therefore I am. Your consciousness allows you to connect with other conscious beings. And this is something we forget. Um, I forget this every day, right? I, ha I have the unique privilege of being able to connect at deep levels with my wife and three kids. And I choose not to because I'm an idiot. And you're an idiot or that there's just something that the Satan in you, the, the negative forces, because we all have them, whether it's yeah. fear of getting what you want, fear of love, fear of intimacy. You're so comfortable in your, no one loves me. I'm alone. I always find it fascinating when married people, because I'm single, married people with children say, I feel so alone. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, but it's, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. I don't think that makes you an idiot. I think it just maybe makes you a little bit afraid. You're coming out of fear versus creativity, which is so normal yeah. because you're not used to that. Maybe the family you came from, it wasn't normal to just sit with each other and look each other in the eye and, and say, we're here. Let's do that. Let, let's be sure. with each other. But I think one of the things that we as humans can't see despite ourselves is what's right in front of us. Right. And so we always want something that's over there. Mm. Um, and what we really need and want and desire and have is right in front of us, I think. And so it's this sense of, of how do you calm your brain enough to realize this and then sort of live in this moment and this existence that we're around. And this is what I would wish everyone could do, me included. If I could do that, I'd be so much happier and my life would be so much more purposeful, I think. I mean, I feel like I, when I wake up in the morning, I have purpose. But sometimes you forget why that purpose or where that purpose puts you and where you're headed. So what I'm gathering from my very superfluous question, I'm sorry, I just was so inspired by everything you said, I was like trying to sum it up, is that you wish everyone would meditate every day. That's very clear because that's, I'm assuming, because that's based on your findings that it actually could cure you or not even cure you, but prevent you from getting things like COVID-19. And that's, uh, again, the meditation, what you talked about, right? It's unique to the individual and sure. you've tried lots of different things. So my meditative experience these days is focused on my faith. And so I do the rosary usually wow. every day. And there is something wow. just amazing about saying the, the Our Father, the Hail Marys and the prayers that puts your mind into this meditative state. And so I think you can experience meditation in very unique, different ways. And, and this is one, one way that I do it. I mean, there's other ways that I meditate as well. And sometimes it's just clarity of thought, right? Being in a quiet space and thinking about things that are happening in my life. And we don't do this enough. Well, I'm an introverted individual, and, and so the pandemic has actually been sort of a boon for people like me. because I heard. <laughs> I'm a double E, so it's very hard for me to be home. Um, and so I think one of the things that people struggle with is space. And I guess I've always found that the biggest space is my mind. And if I can escape Ooh. to it, there's no barrier, right? I mean, I, I have all the space I need. It can give you all of these things, I think, that you desire. But again, it, it takes a certain, there are certain individuals that need interaction and, and those kinds of things. And I unfortunately, fortunately have it at home. I've got four other individuals and a dog that I can interact with. And so that social space is there. So, so you say meditate, find a community, it sounds like. Anything, right? Be with your family, spend time with your family, regardless yeah. of how that shows up for you. And the third one is really take advantage of what you have and see what's right in front of you because often we're looking elsewhere for what's right there and what's a blessing right in front of us. I should also ask, do you think the vaccine's a good idea? I actually got mine a few days ago. Lucky you. Did you do Pfizer or the other I one? The, I got the Moderna one. So I'm, you know, I'm appointed at the VA hospital. And so they're trying to um, vaccinate their entire staff as well. And that's just um, a one shot? Or is it two? No, it's two. So I've scheduled for my second one, I think January 20th. Oh, 
Um, so coming up soon, a few weeks. So they're about three to four weeks apart that you get your two shots. And how was that for you? Was it painful? Um, I had nothing when I first got it. I didn't even feel the poke. And then throughout the, the day, probably about four or five hours later, started to hurt quite a bit. There's still a little bit of soreness. I mean, I got it on Sunday. Um, it's now Wednesday, but you know, it's, that's it. No other major effects or anything. I haven't asked this to anyone who's had the shot because I've only known a few. Are you contagious right now, God forbid, with COVID? Yes. So even after you're vaccinated, you should still wear masks because you're protected. Well, I'm not protected until I get my second shot. Um, So you're building your immunity with the first shot. And then when you get your booster is really when you start to get that massive level of protection. And it's usually seven to 14 days after your second shot where you're going to get this immunity. But that just means that your course of disease is going to be less severe, but you can still get the virus and pass it on to others. So I don't think this mask wearing is going to go anywhere soon. And it's, uh, you know, one of the things we learned in faith is that it's love your neighbor, right? This is part of the Ten Commandments, and it's one of the greatest commandments that Jesus teaches us. And there's lots of resistance to mask wearing, but it's really about loving your neighbor. It protects you, but it really protects the other person. And so I think it's an important thing to do. The other aspect is I think that we as humans don't like to suffer. To really understand faith and healing and forgiveness, it's a little bit about self-suffering, right? You have to understand pain and suffering to understand what that other person is feeling. Sure. And a really simple, silly way to experience this is to wear a mask, I think. So I don't think it's going away anywhere until a large portion of the population is vaccinated, um, which I like another year, you think? Depends on how these vaccines roll out. But I would imagine it's going to be widely available by springtime. Oh, more widely available than now. I think so. You know, and the question will be who's going to choose to do it? That's the big next question is, are people going to be able to do it? Meditate every day, people. Or just meditate every day. Or meditate and take the vaccine. Then you're doubly protected, right? Definitely. Those are great answers. It was a pleasure and an honor and a privilege. And now here are some takeaways from today's episode with Dr. Hamal Patel. To design a perfectly designed scientific experiment, you have to build the right control group, which allows you to see differences. All of the interactions we have as humans, what we eat, who we speak to, how we spend our time, this all comes together and creates us as a unique individual. His research shows that he can capture this in our blood. In other words, blood is the essence of life. All the little things that happen to us throughout the day get captured in our blood and are unique to us. Dr. Hamal Patel uses an unbiased approach to look at what is in the participant's blood before and after meditation. Dr. Joe says that what's happening with meditation is that you're recreating immune function in the body, and meditation can suppress the inflammation in blood. The meditators in a one-week workshop recreated their environment and thus their cells. The cells may be showing that meditation can resist a similar disease to COVID-19. Now, if that's true, what else could be true about meditation? You can try to bring someone to meditation, but if they're not committed, it's not going to happen. Start slowly and work yourself up to a point where it becomes a routine part of your life, which you can't live without, and it will for sure impact your life. Frontier is at the far edge of reason. Faith has to be present for a scientist. And if you want to catch the video that I referenced that I created that sounds really similar to one of the metaphors that Dr. Patel spoke about. It's called Breaking Open. It can be seen either as a full short film on YouTube. Just look up Breaking Open, Barbara Heller, uh, or go to my YouTube page, Barbara Heller, artist and educator, and you can search for it, uh, Breaking Open. It's a short film, but it also is a mini web series as well. And it's actually won a couple of awards at film festivals. It's such a good idea to sit and think about why we're here and what our right choices might be today. We all have little bits and points of light to choose each day. How we go about doing that is up to us. The things that we fear make us sit and contemplate indecision and inactivity comes from this. The fear of the past or the future is where we get stuck today. If everyone on this planet knew 
that meditating every day would not just have an effect on our own personal health, but in, God forbid, the spreading of disease, would everyone do it? Would you meditate knowing that it actually could help stop the spread of an infectious disease? Everyone in the world is connected somehow, individually and as a community. Can you imagine if you decided to take it upon yourself to meditate every day just for a few moments, and then in the evenings, or perhaps even once a week, you joined with a community that meditated together regularly? What kind of effect would that have on this world? How do you calm your brain enough to realize that you have a responsibility to notice what your purpose is? And if we all did this every day, perhaps we would never feel like we had no purpose. Thank you so much for joining us today in episode 15. Please tell me what you got from this episode. Drop us a line at info at barbheller.com. My producer Katya and I would love to hear from you. We work very hard on this podcast and getting it out to you. Please feel free to also drop us a donation. We still have our GoFundMe page very active. If you go to c1beautifulsoul.com and just look at the top of the page, you can click on the GoFundMe page and please feel free to donate 50 cents, a dollar, $5,000, whatever floats your boat. That would be so helpful. Please don't forget to subscribe either on Spotify or on iTunes and feel free to leave us a testimonial on iTunes. It really, really helps with our algorithm. You can also feel free to post this on your Instagram, uh, a quote from this episode that you loved, or even just share it on your Facebook page. That would be so helpful. But again, if you want to text it or email it to a friend or family member, that would be so helpful. We just want the beautiful words and the research that comes out of these episodes to get into the ears and the hearts of every possible soul so that we can continue to keep this world beautiful in all ways, always. This episode was produced by Katya Soto. If you know somebody with a great story about forgiveness, failure, or freedom, please share them with us. If you learned something new or feel like something from this episode can inspire someone else, please share the episode on your Facebook page or Instagram and tag that person and tag us too. You can find all of our social medias, drop us a note, or join our newsletter at www.c1beautifulsoul.com. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you hear podcasts. May we all choose to look for the light in ourselves and each other in all ways, always. always.